This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa giving news from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and also on channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Luanda Maume, standing in for Spumele Lezondi today. With me on the show is Joalani Tulo, Wisani Matebula and Neto Chemani. Your top stories now. A political analyst says Lesotho is on a way to achieve internal stability. Today marks 20 years since the passing of Princess Diana. In economics, the International Monetary Fund approves a one-year extension of its credit facility program with Ghana. And in sports, former Bafana Bafana head coach Ephraim Sheikhs Mashaba says he's fully behind the team ahead of the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifying matches. Details on these and other stories as we progress with the show right now. Let's get to your news now. Here's Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Luanda. Good afternoon. The fleeing of Lesotho former Deputy Prime Minister Motejo Metsing from home does not have the potential to throw the country into yet another political turmoil. This is a view of Dr. Motlamel Lekapa, senior lecturer at the National University of Lesotho. Metsing has fled the country fearing for his life. This raised fears of instability in the mountain kingdom. Dr. Gaba says despite threats to stability, Tom Tabane's administration has things under control. What we had yesterday uh, over the media was that uh, he has indeed fled the country, saying he fears for his life. We are still to get the official version of events, but uh, we were surprised to hear that uh, the, the leader of the LCD has also left the country, fled the country, fearing for his life. Uh, what we, 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 we cannot confirm now is to why he did it. They say he feared for his life, but uh, the current administration has been very clear that it is going to observe the principles of rule of law. Uh, there was no way they could get anyone. Uh, we hear he says he fears for his life. We don't know uh, as to what uh, caused that. We are yet to hear really, probably today, from the authorities as to what has happened. But we hear he says he fears for his life and then he ran away. So we, we can't really say anything much other than that. A new parliament has officially opened in Kenya and its members sworn in following general elections at the beginning of this year. James Shimanyula has the details. The parliament of Kenya, which officially opened Wednesday, comprises the Senate and the National Assembly. The Senate is the upper house, while the National Assembly is the lower house. Parliament was opened following August the 8th general election. President Uhuru Kenyatta was re-elected but he has not been sworn in because a petition challenging his re-election is to be finalized tomorrow Friday. It is after the Supreme Court upholding his re-election that Uhuru Kenyatta will be sworn in. If his re-election is not upheld, fresh presidential election will take place after 60 days from tomorrow. South Africa's opposition EFF MPs have walked out of a presidential question and answer session of the National Assembly after they repeatedly disrupted President Jacob Zuma's attempts to answer questions. EFF MPs accused Zuma of dodging questions. They also accused the Deputy Speaker Lechesa Tenodi of undermining democracy by not ensuring that Zuma answers specific questions as they were posed by the opposition. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is concerned about widespread malnutrition in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where approximately 2 million children are severely malnourished. Places like South Kivu, emerging from decades of warfare but not yet peaceful, are particularly affected. This as many of the humanitarian agencies that had kept the crisis in check have retreated in recent years. MSF's head of mission in South Kivu, Otero Villa. The reason mostly are the situation related to the conflict in the area, the displacement of the population, also the difficulties for the people that are living in rural areas to go and to cultivate their fields 
also again and due to the to the increase of violence and displacement of these people in this area. Other reasons also are the different epidemics that are taking place in the country. Eh? So the measles epidemics and cholera are also have an impact on the situation of the nutrition of the people in several areas in the country. And finally, today is African Traditional Medicine Day, which seeks to promote the development of African traditional medicines. In some African countries, up to 80% of the population relies on traditional medicine for their primary health care needs. However, despite its recognized popular use, indigenous knowledge holders say more needs to be done by governments to take African medicines seriously. National Coordinator of the Traditional Healers Organization in South Africa, Pepsile Maseko. Countries need to put in place legislation that enables the development of African traditional medicine itself. Because if those legislations are put in place and those legislations are followed, their implementation is monitored, then it will allow for African traditional medicine to be formalized, like any other health system, including Western health system. So if those things are not considered very seriously, it then becomes very, very difficult for any country and for any person who's a healer that is wanting to do this. The other thing, which is the first thing most crucial, is the putting together of funding. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. Let's say thank you very much there to Jalani Tule with that uh, news bulletin. Now let's get on to our first story here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. My name is Luyanda Maume. I am standing in for Spumelele Zondi today. Now the fleeing of former Deputy Prime Minister of Lesotho, Motejo Metzing, from home does not have the potential to throw the country into yet another political turmoil. This is a view of Dr. Motlamen Lekapa, senior lecturer at the National University of Lesotho. Metzing has fled the country fearing for his life, which raised fears of instability in the mountain kingdom. The Southern African Development Community, SADC, has given the November deadline to the newly elected Prime Minister, Tom Tabane, to have a roadmap to implement decisions aimed at finally bringing peace and stability to the Southern African Kingdom, which has been battling political instability since 2014. Dr. Kappa says although the situation is tense, Tom Tabane's administration has things under control. There are no tensions in Lesotho currently. There are no, absolutely no tensions. What we had also yesterday uh, over the media was that uh, he has indeed fled the country, saying he fears for his life. We are still to get the official version of events. What we have seen, the latest developments uh, are that uh, after the disappearance of that police constable, then uh, exhumation of his booty. Uh, by the authorities after after about a year of his disappearance. A, a lot of people were being questioned, including the four police officers who are now in custody. Recently, we heard that uh, the, the former Minister of Defence has also been taken in to answer the question. But uh, we were surprised to hear that uh, the, the leader of the LCD has also left the country, fled the country, fearing for his life. Uh, what we, 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 we cannot confirm now is to... Why he did it? They say he feared for his life, but uh, the current administration has been very clear that it is going to observe the principles of rule of law. Uh, there was no way they could get anyone. Uh, we hear he says he fears for his life. We don't know uh, as to what uh, caused that. We are yet to hear really, probably today, from the authorities as to what has happened. But we hear he says he fears for his life and then he ran away. So we, we can't really say anything much other than that. Now, Dr. Kappa, do you think the current administration has uh, things under control in terms of quelling down any uh, political tensions that may arise? Well, I don't see any basis for any political disturbance or anything of the sort uh, because what they are doing is to try to move uh, towards returning the country to uh, the rule of law, which was uh, a problem in the country. So far, they have been conducting uh, things in a way that we observe as belief. Everything is, is okay, because unlike in the past where people have been abducted by people who came from the security forces, this time around the police actually do go uh, to residences of these people after calling them. We, 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 we were told that even the, minister, the former minister of defense was called after uh, he, he was not able to... To, to show himself up, they told him that they were going to, to pick him up. 
That is why he ended himself in. And if you compare the manner in which this government is doing things with the predecessor, under the previous administration, people were being abducted, actually, because they would be taken in by unknown people who couldn't identify themselves, and then they would not even make appear before the court. But this one, they are, the police are actually doing this and they don't do it. They, they, they're actually doing these investigations. Tell people that they want to talk to them. Take them in. Take them through all the processes. So far, we haven't heard of any, anything wrong, really, in terms of the way in which they are doing things. That is Dr. Motlame Lekap, a political science lecturer at the National University of Lesotho. On the line from Maseru, talking there to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjerere. Now to Kenya, where new parliament has officially been opened and its members sworn in following general elections at the beginning of this month. James Shimanyula covered the opening and filed the following report. The parliament of Kenya, which officially opened Wednesday, comprises the Senate and the National Assembly. The Senate is the upper house, while the National Assembly is the lower house. Parliament was opened following August the 8th general election. President Uhuru Kenyatta was re-elected but he has not been sworn in because a petition challenging his re-election is to be finalized tomorrow Friday. It is after the Supreme Court upholding his re-election that Uhuru Kenyatta will be sworn in. If his re-election is not upheld, fresh presidential election will take place after 60 days from tomorrow. As has been said, members of Kenya's new parliament have been sworn in. This is how the swearing-in ceremony was carried out. Honorable Julius Meli, Honorable Johanna Ngeno. As you can hear in the background, names of new members of Kenya Parliament are being announced in Kenya Parliament, where... The members are being sworn in as their names are announced. The process is long, but it's aimed at ensuring that all members that were elected during the August the 8th parliamentary elections are sworn in. The Speaker of the National Assembly has not been uh, named yet, but... uh, after the process of swearing in all the MPs, the Speaker will be elected. Also sworn in were members of the Senate. Shortly after the swearing in, they elected their new Speaker, Ken Lusaka, as this Senate official confirms in an announcement. The votes cast were 67. There were no spoiled votes. Lusaka, Kenneth, Makelo, 42 votes. Maalim. Farah, 25 votes. Therefore, Honorable Senators, pass one to standing order number seven, paragraph four. I now declare Lusaka Kenneth Makelo to be duly elected as the Speaker of the Senate. Making his maiden speech in the Senate, the newly elected Speaker Ken Lusaka shed light on the role that the Senate will play to ensure that it serves the people of Kenya. We will adopt a proactive approach. We will strive to make Senate to be a friend of all Kenyans and let Senate be their sanctuary in times of distress. Let Senate be a beacon of sobriety and hope for Kenyans of all ages. That was Ken Lusaka, newly elected Speaker of the Senate in Kenya. The Senate is the upper house while the National Assembly is the lower house of the Parliament of Kenya. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam. Kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du soleil. Kia makande embalelo kina Miriam. 
Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Welcome back indeed. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, giving news uh, from an African perspective. Uh, remember, you can keep in touch with us. You can uh, uh, send us an email on info at channelafrica.co.za. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. And if you want to catch us on Twitter, we are on at channelafrica1, at channelafrica, the numerical one on Twitter. Twenty years ago today, Diana, the Princess of Wales, was pronounced dead following a car crash in Paris. Her death shocked the nation and was deeply troubling for the British monarchy, an institution she'd energized and exasperated in equal measure. In the days following her death, as flowers were left at the palace gates around the UK and people wept openly in the street, Queen Elizabeth and her family, who were staying at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, were accused of being out of touch and unfeeling. The BBC's royal correspondent Peter Hunt looks back at the events. Diana, Princess of Wales, is in hospital in Paris tonight. Seriously injured after a road accident, her close companion, Dodi Al-Fayed, has been killed. Initially, it was thought this was a princess in peril who could be rescued, a former queen-in-waiting who would survive a crash in a Paris tunnel. I first heard about the accident at 25 past 11 UK time on Saturday night from a reporter at CNN in Atlanta. He phoned up to say... Can you tell me about the crash? I said, what crash? Dickie Arbiter had worked for Diana. I then went into the living room, switched on the TV, and saw this thing unfolding. And I thought, my goodness, nobody can possibly survive that. And then uh, there was nothing. His instinct was right. A drunken driver with photographers in pursuit had crashed into the tunnel's 13th pillar, killing three of the four occupants. And now at 20 past five, there is an official announcement. Here's Andrew Crawford. Buckingham Palace has confirmed the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. In a statement, it said the Queen and Prince Philip were deeply shocked and distressed by this terrible news. I was in the office by 10 to 4, phoning around various palaces that had flagpoles, getting the flag down to half-mast. Unfortunately, Buckingham Palace didn't have a flag. That story went on and on and on for a few days. In Paris, Britain's ambassador, Michael Jay, was preparing to confirm the news that reverberated then and still reverberates now. The French interior minister was by Lord Jay's side. I said to him, can I just have one minute? Because I realised at that stage that this was, just, this was not an ordinary press conference. This was the kind of press conference that the world was going to listen to and want to know about. And I just paused for a moment to write down, I think on the back of a receipt, just what I was going to say. The death of the Princess of Wales fills us all with deep shock and with deep grief. Throughout the night, Tony Blair spoke with his officials. In the first flush of his premiership, he was searching for the words that would best capture a nation's pain at the loss of a princess. The people everywhere, not just here in Britain, everywhere, they kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her, they regarded her as one of the people. She was the people's princess. And that's how she will stay, how she will remain in our hearts and in our memories forever. On a different continent, the media was clamouring for a reaction from Earl Spencer. Outside his Cape Town home, Diana's brother obliged, in a way the reporters might not have anticipated and in a way that provided a foretaste of the eulogy he would deliver six days later. This is not a time for recriminations, but for sadness. However, I would say that I always believed the press would kill her in the end. But not even I could imagine that they would take such a direct hand in her death, as seems to be the case. It would appear that every proprietor and editor of every publication that has paid for intrusive and exploitative photographs of her, encouraging greedy and ruthless individuals to risk everything in pursuit of Diana's image, has blood on his hands today. The passing of the prime ministerially labelled People's Princess was marked by the people, in their thousands. They came to palace gates to leave flowers and to weep, an uncharacteristic display at the time 
of British emotion. They were grieving at the death of a royal they didn't know, but who, through her vulnerability, they felt they had a connection with. Everybody loved Ella. <laughs> She's someone that every young woman probably wanted to be. Beautiful, she was just, just a lovely person. We all hoped that we could be like her. The princess's body was brought home with royal ceremonial. The BA-146 of the Royal Squadron landed at RAF Northolt into the setting sun. On this day, at this time, 20 years ago, few would have been in a position to predict how the public reaction would grow and how the Windsors would be wrong-footed by the perception that they were geographically and emotionally detached from a country and its suffering. On this evening in 1997, the priority was bringing Diana home. In life, after divorce, she was stripped of her HRH title. In death, the coffin of Diana, Princess of Wales, was covered with the royal standard. That report there by the BBC's Peter Hunt. While Zimbabwe has managed to reduce its HIV prevalence over the past 10 years, there are young people who are still engaged in risky sexual behaviour, putting the country at risk of reversing the gains made against HIV-AIDS. However, Dr. Owen Mokurungi, head of HIV-AIDS and STIs at the Ministry of Health and Child Welfare in the country, says they are working on HIV program that will target the youth. He was speaking at the 67th session of the World Health Organization Regional Committee Conference at the Victoria Falls. Currently, some 1.3 million Zimbabweans are living with HIV. Dr. Mokurungi elaborates. Zimbabwe currently has a prevalence or rate of infection of around 14% of the adults being affected by HIV and AIDS. And that translates to about 1.3 million Zimbabweans living with HIV and AIDS. But this prevalence has over the past 10 years or so been coming down. Remember, at our highest, around the mid-90s, we had a prevalence of close to 28% of Zimbabweans were living with HIV and AIDS. Over the years, we have seen a decline of this prevalence or rate of infection progressively to down to about 14%. The issue is now we don't expect that prevalence to get lower than 14% for two basic reasons. The first one being we are, of course, implementing the antiretroviral therapy program in which people living with HIV and AIDS uh, no longer die. So we are keeping them alive. So we expect that to stabilize. You mentioned, Doctor, that Zimbabwe's prevalence has been coming down over the past 10 years or so. What do you attribute the success to? So there are mainly three factors that uh, would affect that. Of course, one would be that new infections themselves are getting low. The second one will be people dying. And the third one is, of course, migration. So we do know that uh, in terms of deaths, there are fewer people dying from HIV-related deaths in this country. In terms of migration, yes, we did have lots of migration initially, but the rate of migration is stabilized, so their outward migration is lower than the people coming back and lastly the rate of new infections is the one that has been coming down as i said the incidence or rate of new infections we've seen it progressively come down from around five percent right down to below one percent and now it's 0.05 percent the issues that we can attribute this are mainly the impacts of aids at its peak A lot of our people saw their relatives, friends and families succumb to HIV and AIDS. When you then get a situation where people are dying and you then give the message or you're trying to teach people about that disease, you have a captive audience. So people were able to take our messages seriously because they could see their relatives, families and friends dying. So people managed to change their behavior. Studies that we've done have shown that um, condom use with non-regular partners went up. The number of sexual partners per year per person also decreased. 
So the risky sexual behaviors got less and people adopted safer sexual behavior. But having said so, there is always a challenge of young people because our young people, the millenniums, for example, did not see this as a big problem. So again, we are seeing a reverse. The rates of uh, STIs are beginning to go up. And we suspect that in the next few years, if we don't concentrate in this group, we'll also reverse some of these gains. This millennium group, are your messages filtering down to them? The message is getting to them, but we know young people being young people will always experiment. They will also try new horizons and they are less likely to maintain stable relationships. I think everybody would want that age. We want to call it they are in a sexual marketplace because today they're going out with this person but they break up after three months or after six months and it might not be due to their fault that uh, they broke up because they're still looking for a steady partner. But in that process that they are trying to get a steady partner, then they get infected or they get exposed to unsafe sexual behavior. All we're encouraging now is that during that period that they are still hunting or trying to get a steady sexual partner, they should use maximum protection. They should use condoms. They should have access to PrEP and also they should also have access to PA programs. Let's take a quick look at the UN's 1990-90 goal. How is Zimbabwe faring in ensuring that 90% of all people living with HIV know their status and that 90% of those diagnosed with HIV receive sustained treatment and that by 2020 all people on antiretroviral treatment will have viral suppression? Right. As Zimbabwe, I think we have uh, done well. Again, I refer back to the recent HIV impact assessment that we did have. We know that in terms of access to treatment, the people that know their HIV status, we are now at 74% of all the people that are infected knowing their HIV status. They are around 74%, which is quite a far cry from the desired 90. That's But for those that know their HIV status, we know that 87% of those that know their HIV status are on treatment. And of those that are on treatment, the ones with maximum viral suppression is 86%. So on the last two 90s, we're doing fairly well. Where we need to step up is people living with HIV and AIDS knowing their HIV status. That is Dr. Owen Mukurungi, head of the HIV, AIDS and STIs at the Ministry of Health and Child Welfare in Zimbabwe, speaking there to Elizabeth Lidiha. Tropical storm Harvey that has flooded parts of Texas, including the, its biggest city, Houston, has been losing power and is heading eastward. 30 people are believed to have died and as many as 600,000 are temporarily without a home. But as the BBC's correspondent Nada Tofik reports, the efforts are slowly shifting from rescue to recovery. No, no, don't be sorry. Alongside the tales of tragedy are the acts of heroism. Here, we're going to put the life vest on you. Okay. Hurricane Harvey did its worst, and yet it brought out the best of Texas. Gold, are you all right? All right, try to climb in this. I'll push you up, all right? One, two, three. All across the storm-battered region, neighbors have stepped in to help each other at the first sign of trouble. In the memorial area of western Houston, they are still fighting the flood water. There, Anne Brown turned her home into a makeshift shelter. Everybody is pulled together. We are hosting a family from the back of the neighborhood that is flooded out that I never met before. So their three kids and parents are staying with us, but everybody comes over for coffee and breakfast. So the community is just rallied big time. And that's part of the beauty of living here. Mayor Sylvester Turner is determined to return his city to some sense of normalcy. The freeways are opening, area airports are up and running again, and he's asked the Houston Astros baseball team to play their home game on Friday. I spoke with him at the city's largest shelter. Now it's the recovery phase, and that's short as well as long term. So we have people, for example, that in, in shelters, and as quickly as possible we want to transition them out of shelters and get them back into their normal routine. 
and I think we're going to work to make that happen as quick as possible. How do you feel Harvey has changed the spirit of Houston? Oh, look, it's, it has enhanced our spirit. I'm a native Houstonian. We have faced challenge after challenge after challenge, and we have always overcome them. You're talking to someone where neither one of my parents graduated from high school. My dad died when I was 13, no health insurance. My mom was a maid at, at a hotel right down the street, rearing nine kids. Hell, this is just another challenge, and now I'm the mayor of the fourth largest city in the country. This city will come back stronger than it has ever been. I don't have any doubt about that. You say you plan to sing at church this Sunday. <laughs> what will you be praying for? Oh, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That was my mom's favorite song, and it's a song that I still carry forth today. And as you notice, the sun came out yesterday, and the sun is out today. No cloud remains over any city forever. That report by the BBC is not a topic. Let's get your news headlines now. Here's Joala Nitulo. Thank you, Luanda. Making headlines, the fleeing of Lesotho former Deputy Prime Minister Muteja Mitzing from home does not have the potential to throw the country into yet another political turmoil. This is the view of Dr. Mutlame Lekapa, senior lecturer at, of the, rather at the National University of Lesotho. South Africa's opposition EFF MPs have walked out of a presidential question-and-answer session of the National Assembly after they repeatedly disrupted President Jacob Zuma's attempts to answer questions. And finally, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is concerned about widespread malnutrition in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where approximately 2 million children are severely malnourished. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Welcome back. You are still with Africa Digest on Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. And now, the devastating war in Syria has created the biggest exodus since World War II. Amongst the first group of Syrians to leave the country were the owner and the keepers of a zoo near Aleppo. As a result, over 140 animals were abandoned. Years later, the war-torn zoo is now nothing but a display for hundreds of carcasses in shattered cages. But not all of the animals died. Twelve of them, including two tigers, two bears and five lions, miraculously survived. The International Animal Welfare Organization, Four Paws, came across the photos of these last survivors after locals posted them on social media and organized a high-risk rescue mission. Five months later, and the animals are now living in a sanctuary in Jordan. The BBC's Saha Zand has been granted rare access. This is Donna, a Syrian refugee and a new mother. Escaping the Syrian war and only a few hours after arriving in Jordan, she has just given birth. The cub is tiny. He's like a small cat. He's got a milky white fur. It really is quite an extraordinary view. The lioness, with all of her scars, feeding her newborn. Under the hot Jordanian midday sun, I'm walking through a very unique type of refugee camp. Donna was brought to Almawa Sanctuary, along with the 12 other last survivors from a war-torn zoo in Aleppo, rescued 
by the international animal welfare charity Four Paws. Amir Khalil, an Egyptian vet, led the rescue mission. Hundreds of animals in the last six years died from hunger, starvation, lack of medicine, lack of food, also fear and stress, war. Trapped in small cages, the abandoned animals were kept alive by the locals, risking their lives to feed them. It was very, very difficult for them. What is priority? To go to check my kids at first if they have dinner or should I stay beside the animal? Two Asian black bears, two tigers, two hyenas, two dogs and five lions were rescued. We're going to the other side of the sanctuary. It's so big, we can't, we can't really walk from one end to the other. We're getting a lift. Stop, stop. Thank you, Shokran. All right. We're at the far end of the sanctuary now. Inside the cage on my right, there is a tiger. He's very skinny. Various red marks exposing his flesh really stand out between his brilliant orange stripy fur. The tiger is called Sultan, and on his way here, he almost lost his life after a cardiac arrest. As Diana Bernes, the head of animal care at Almawa, points out, just like Sultan, the other animals have also injured a lot of injuries. Some kidney deficiencies, the dental problems, a lack of nutrition. They will receive um, medical veterinary care. We will have uh, a dentist come in. One, two, three. On their way from Syria, during a brief stopover in Turkey, the animals received their initial medical treatment. But years of trauma has left them distressed. We've been... We've been asked to walk away because one of the bears actually tried to climb out of his new cage. We all thought that he's actually going to come outside and attack us, so we all had to run away. He was put back into his night room to help him adjust to his new home. We sat with him for about half an hour. We talked gently to him. and we This is Diana Bernas again, head of animal care here. We wanted him to know that we're loving, caring beings, and this is our role to look after him. Eric Margulies. I'm a, uh, a great lover of animals. The American businessman and journalist has financed this mission. There are so many innocent people, children, women, stuck and abandoned in war zones. How come you decided to rescue these animals over these people? Mother Teresa put it very well. She said, you know, I can't perform great miracles, but I can perform many small miracles. And that's what I've chosen to do because not many people are concerned about animals. Nobody wanted to sponsor this daring rescue mission, Operation Noah's Ark, as they sometimes call it. Amir Khalil, the man leading the rescue mission, has spent the past 23 years of his life rescuing animals from war zones. We see animals can connect people. I watched it in all the rescue missions before, in Gaza, in Mosul, in Libya, in Baghdad. I saw every soldier, whatever which his nation, whatever he believed, he just put his weapon down and he wanted to see the animal and he smiled and he wanted even to take a selfie with the animal. The Princess of Jordan has now arrived. She's the person who has given this sanctuary to these animals. Both sides are willing to help to get them out. So I think that's a very important thing because sometimes people can forget their own differences or put them aside to work for a different goal. And if animals can be a vehicle for that, that's great. This is a fetus. An ultrasound scan performed in Turkey confirmed that Donna was pregnant with twins. Amir, how, how is she doing? How is the baby? I don't see now signs for, for the second baby to come. Like the rest of the animals from the zoo, the second cub also did not make it. But Hajar lives on, symbolizing a new beginning. That report by the BBC's Saha Zand. While Africa's workforce expands, the lack of modern and efficient infrastructure is inhibiting economic growth. The prospect of building power plants and transportation networks is daunting for many countries with limited resources. Former chief economist of, of the African Development Bank, Mtuli Ngube, says reducing risk for private sector investors could help Africa build the infrastructure it so desperately needs. An infrastructure gap, basically, is the unfunded or uninvested infrastructure 
that needs to be you know developed in order to support the current level of economic growth or economic activity uh, in a country hmm. and so is this so-called infrastructure gap uh, bigger in africa than it is uh, in other regions it is bigger in africa not in size but as a proportion or a percentage of the size of the african economies it is certainly bigger than in other regions and why is that because africa has had suffered a, a few constraints it's a constraint of resources in terms of you know the money is available to invest in this infrastructure is got to do with some of the instability that some of the african countries have gone through uh, there are a variety of reasons why the investment required in infrastructure has not taken place and that is kept this gap open for far too long and so what types of infrastructure is africa lacking the most outside it's, it's a variety of infrastructure but it's mainly around uh, power infrastructure you have quite a lot of power outages because of unstable power supply and also the way this is transmitted to end users that is also a challenge you've got gaps as well in transportation infrastructure if you go to almost in any capital city in africa you'll be struck by the congestion in the capital cities that says something about perhaps the availability of infrastructure around cities but also across regions within this, this the same country you also have still have gaps as well in the in information technology sector the so-called ICT sector of course africa has made great strides in mobile telephony if it it leapfrogged that sector completely but there are still gaps that they still need to be filled there are also gaps in the area of water and sanitation and that is not an easy sector to invest in in terms of private sector investment to you know in water water is usually seen as a right sanitation uh, somewhat as well very similar to being a right so it's not very easy to invest in that sector where people believe that it is their right and therefore shouldn't even pay for it mm. so there are gaps right across all infrastructure and those are some of the the challenges we, uh, we are facing and you use several uh, examples in your book as to how you know fairly small projects can uh, stimulate uh, local economies and there's one in particular that you spoke of that struck me as interesting and that is uh, the road between that was built between Kigali and Burundi tell me about that absolutely it's it's a road built uh, within the last 10 years which has really transformed that part of Rwanda and that's when you realize that a road is not just a simple road in a rural area a tarred road is in fact an economy it can reduce poverty especially if you feed the roads it helps farmers get to the market even school children can get faster to school mothers can get to clinics besides i mean you you are talking about two countries you've got trade taking place between those those countries so so a, a road can transform a whole region and in fact you have small cities and settlement sprouting up all along the road why because that movement of traffic is creating economic activity so infrastructure should not be just be seen as a nice to have something that just reduces the cost of doing business it is an economy that can change people's lives it is an economy that can transform the poverty profile of regions of poor regions in africa so there's obviously a, a huge need for a lot of big projects in africa but given you know the current state of the economy in many of these countries with falling revenues and rising debt um how are they expected to finance these these huge projects the gap uh, left by dwindling or you know resources of the state of governments because of debt or low growth that gap needs to be filled by the private sector So what we really need to figure out is how we can attract more private sector funding in infrastructure. There are certain ways to do that. One of them is through what we call public private partnerships, PPPs, which is a, a, a what happens is that, you know, the government gives a concession to a private sector company to build a road, you know, and operate that road over let's say a 30 year period. 
and you know, train the private companies able to levy tariffs for the use of the road and be able to recoup the cost of deploying that asset, uh, building that infrastructure. Simple PPP uh, arrangement. Then after 30 years or whatever, 25 years concession, it is given back to the government, it's transferred to the government. It could be something like that. So that's one way to crowd in the private sector. But there are many other ways. You see, if you look at pension funds, there's a lot of money also in the pension fund sector within Africa and globally. How do you bring pension funds in? I think there's work that needs to be done in creating instrument and securities that are easy for pension funds to invest in. It's very critical because without that, they're not going to put their money in a road, in a power station, without being able to value, put a value on their investments or being able to sell out and cash out whenever they need to. So creating the instruments that allow that to happen is key to crowding in the private sector. That is Mtuli Ngube, Managing Director of Quantum Global Research Lab, a visiting professor at Oxford University and co-editor of Development, speaking to Bruce Edwards from the International Monetary Fund. With that, let's get your latest economics update. Here's with Sani Matebula. We start off in Nigeria in this economics news broadcast. U.S. authorities are investigating China Petroleum and Chemical Corporation over allegations that the state-controlled oil producer paid Nigerian officials about 100 million U.S. dollars worth of bribes to resolve a business dispute. Investigators from the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department are looking into allegations that outside lawyers acting as middlemen for the company known as Sinopec funneled illicit payments from HCC unit to the Nigerians through banks in New York and California. The alleged payments were intended to resolve a $4 billion dispute between the Chinese oil company's Ardux Petroleum Unit in Geneva and the Nigerian government over drilling and other capital costs, tax breaks and a division of royalties between Ardux and the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation. South Africa's Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries says all exports of poultry products have been halted due to the recent avian flu outbreak. Thousands of chickens have been culled and eggs destroyed to stem the spread of the disease in the country. So far, over 20 outbreak cases have been reported in South Africa. Department spokesperson Bumikazi Mulap explains. At the moment, we're not trading with the, with the EU at all because obviously since we had the first outbreak, we have not been able to guarantee country freedom, to certify country freedom, which means the country is free from this particular uh, disease. A lot of our trading partners have stopped trading with, with South Africa, but there are some that are still trading. The International Monetary Fund has approved the one-year extension of its credit facility program with Ghana, lengthening the lender's economic oversight over the West African nation, which is battling to keep spending under control. The country's euro bonds rallied on the back of this news. The extension follows after the IMF completed a fourth review of almost a billion US dollar assistance program with Ghana agreed to in April 2015 when chronic overspending and power cuts drained public finances and caused inflation to soar. Ghana's budget deficit for 2016 was 9.3% of gross domestic product compared with an initial target of 5.3% under the IMF program. In statistics, South Africa announcing a decline in producer price inflation for 4% in June to July's 3.6%. Month-on-month producer price inflation rose to 0.5% from 0.3% in June. Statistics South Africa says the biggest contributor to the slowdown came from manufactured food products. Economists say consumer prices are likely to ease further. Busi Khadebe is an economist with NetBank. 
These numbers shouldn't be looked at in isolation. You should also look at them in terms of what happened with consumer inflation as well. Both headline producer inflation and consumer inflation slowed in July. And if you look at the remainder of the year, the outlook for both consumer inflation and headline uh, producer inflation, we see that they're actually going to slow down and remain below that 5% mark. This obviously has implications for monetary policy. What is the Reserve Bank going to do when the numbers look this way? If we see growth that is pretty weak, and then we see inflation actually coming down quite nicely, everything else being equal, the Reserve Bank should probably cut rates. In some companies' news, now General Electric plans to reduce their corporate staff globally in an effort to cut spending and boost their profits under its new executive. The company already has halted hiring in certain technology positions. New CEO John Flannery has told senior-level executives to prepare for cuts at headquarters and other areas of the company that do not produce revenue or profit. It's not yet clear how many jobs will be eliminated. GE has declined to discuss the details. Financial indicators now the dollar at 13 South African rents, 1004 Botswana Pula, and 906 Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.83 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,309, platinum $995 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil remaining unchanged at $51.46 per barrel. That's your economics news. Let's get your latest sports update. Here's uh, Neto Chamani. Good evening, sport fans. With your latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with athletics news, Hadla Wendanel will carry the South African flag at the 14th and final leg of the IAAF Diamond League Series in Brussels, Belgium on Friday evening. Nel, who recently reached the semi-finals of a specialist event at the IAAF World Champions in London, is up against a quality field in the women's one-lap race over the barriers. The 400-meter hurdles lineup, which includes five athletes who have run under 54 seconds in their careers, features the likes of Olympic champion Dalai Lama of the United States, former world champion Susanna Hejnova of the Czech Republic and European champion Sarah Peterson of Denmark. Nell, the only South African athlete in the start list, will go into the blocks at 20.03 Central African time. On to football news. Former Bafana Bafana head coach Ephraim Sheikhs Mashaba says he's fully behind the team. This ahead of the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier matches against Cape Verde in Estadio Nacional in Praia on Friday. Kickoff is at 20.30 p.m. Central African time. The return leg will be played in South Africa at the Debens Moses Mabira Stadium next Tuesday at 1900 Central African time. Mashaba wishes Stuart Baxter's men all the best. I'm a South African. There's no change. I cannot work against the South African team. I wear, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm begging them together with my family. I remember the other day when we beat um, Nigeria. We were sitting glued on the tree and we were all shouting. But what I looked at is there anyone who's trying to be uh, pretending? No. Everybody was, happy. Everybody was happy. So that's why I'm saying good luck to them. Nigerian captain Mikel John Obi has expressed his desire to lead his country to their fifth appearance at the FIFA World Cup next year. If Nigeria's Super Eagles qualify, it will only be Mikel's second appearance at the World Cup after his debut at the 2014 edition in Brazil. And the TNG in Teda midfielder made it clear to a packed conference room on Wednesday that the squad want to go to the World Cup. He added that every player in the Nigeria squad know the task ahead as they prepare to face African champions Cameroon on Friday in the first of two meetings in the space of four days. On to cricket news. Proteus captain Faf Duplessis will not only have the honour of leading a world classic group of players in the upcoming T20 Global League, he will also play his home matches in one of the most beautiful parts of South Africa. Duplessis is the captain of the Stellenbosch Monarchs for the exciting new A2Team T20 competition in South Africa and the skipper says it's an honour to lead the team in the Winelands. Since moving to Cape Town about three years ago, um, 
I knew that the Cape Town franchise was probably going to go to someone like JP um, because he's lived all his life. But my second uh, choice definitely was um, Stellenbosch. Um, I'm absolutely in love with the, with that area and the Winelands. Uh, so we go there quite often, uh, trying to get there for weekends away and stuff. So I love that little area in Farnsuk, Stellenbosch and Paul. Um, so initially, way, way, long, way back when... Um, the team was starting to set up. Obviously, when I got distributed to the Paul or Stellenbosch franchise, the, the idea was that I was going to captain. Um, so, yeah, as with, with any team that I always captain, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice honor to do it because, you know, you're in charge of, of your team and now you're, now you're going to set up things and your culture and everything. So, yeah, looking forward to that opportunity where there's going to be quite a few um, guys that I haven't played with um, overseas and also domestically. So I think uh, it's going to be a nice challenge for me to, to grow as a leader even more. The AD team finalized their squads at the player draft in Cape Town on Sunday and the Monarchs secured the services of three of the best international T20 players in the world. Sri Lanka speed bowler Lasith Malinga, England opening batsman Alex Hales and Pakistan spin bowling all-rounder Imad Wasim will play key roles for the Stellenbosch side in the tournament and Duplessis says he is delighted with the quality of his team. Yeah, I'm excited about the, the, the squad that we picked. Um, obviously, was very um, involved in the draft um, on the weekend that just happened on, on putting together a team for for the Monarchs. Um, so myself and Stephen Fleming and Eric Simons uh, had a lot of planning and, and, and try and put together a team that we thought will, will be successful in those conditions. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. Let's close the show by taking a quick recap of your top stories now. A political analyst says Lesotho is on the way to achieve internal stability. And today marks 20 years since the passing of Princess Diana. That brings us to the conclusion of Africa Digest. From myself, your host, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Dumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. Until next time, it's good night and God bless.
Kuna mkuti mvandi kuchunyanja service ya Channel Africa. Tikumveka pa 9625 kHz imene ndi 31 meter.